We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Skosha Mongovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the disaster management and creative sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm joined by Nathan Harrison, who is part of Boho Interactive. Boho Interactive are a group of artists, performers and game designers who work in collaboration with research scientists and other experts to present performances, interactive games and workshops for audiences in boardrooms, conferences, festivals, theatres, classrooms and museums. I have followed their work for a while now and loved having the opportunity to speak with Nathan more about their work and the power of games to ignite creativity, create shared languages and foster collaboration. Please enjoy my conversation with Nathan Harrison. So thanks for joining us for Creative Responders, Nathan. Where are you joining us from today? I'm on Bidjigal land in South Sydney. Great. It's very sunny outside. I'm very like, do I throw away all of my other commitments for today and run to the beach? Oh, how nice. I'd say yes. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the right thing to do. <laughs> well, I'm joining you from Meenjin uh, in Brisbane, the land of the Yagara and Turrbal people. And we also have a sunny day. It feels like summer has suddenly arrived and certainly after such a wet period to have a bit of sunshine drying us up is uh, really lovely. It's yeah. nice. It's really nice. Yeah. So, Nathan, you're part of the Boho Interactive. Do you call it a collective? Yeah, I think we call ourselves a collective. Oh. We're just, yeah, yeah. So a collective of artists and game designers working with a really broad range of organisations across science, arts, research, government, both here in Australia and around the world. And I'd love to start off by hearing about how you first became involved with the collective and what was your background that led you to this type of work? I uh, have a background in theatre and performance. I studied at University of Wollongong. And out of that uni, I, me and I guess a whole bunch of friends decided to just keep making work together. We were called Applespiel. And we did a lot of interactive work, a lot of work where the audience were just, you know, really participatory work. Our first show was uh, kind of, we built a model of a local area out of like paddle pop sticks and colored cardboard and asked people to suggest changes and we would kind of enact all these changes and these visions that people had of their local area onto this tiny little model on the floor. And it was a very playful way to do that. Uh, and then I met a few of the people from Boho uh, at a couple of festivals. This is not art up in Newcastle and then also in Canberra. And in 2012, uh, Apple Spiel were taking a show to Edinburgh Fringe because we hated having money, so we decided to just burn it all by doing a really <laughs> uh, long and unsuccessful season of the show. But Boho were working on a project over in the UK that year as well, and um, David Finnegan and David Shaw just got in touch and were like, hey, do you want to come after Edinburgh? Do you want to come and hang out with us and, and we're going to try and make something? And I was like, that sounds great. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I joined, and that was to make Best Festival Ever. That was kind of the first development of that, which... Um, I think for Boho as well, that was like a bit of a turning point in the company. Like some people had kind of 
stepped back a little bit. And so me and a couple of other people were brought in and it was kind of a slightly new direction to start doing, I guess, just more games. Like it's still very theatre based, but we're sort of shifting a little bit the dial Mm. between theatre and game towards the game side. But the best festival ever project was the project of yours that I first came across. And I've seen it described as part theatre show, part performance lecture, part board game. Can can you describe yeah. what the best festival ever is and some of the different iterations? Because it's been around for a while and presented, I think, over 60 times, hasn't it? Yeah, we've been doing it. I, th- I guess we finished it in about 2014 and we still do it pretty regularly, which is astounding. And I think you know, <laughs> anything in the arts to have a life outside, you know, a year or two, particularly in theatre, is wild. Uh, best festival ever is a huge board game that 30 or so people play around a table about a music festival where everyone will kind of join in and and run the music festival. And there are three of us from Boho that kind of facilitate it. And as they play the game, we tell the story of this music festival, the people that are there, and then the inevitable kind of natural disaster that happens as the festival has to then pivot uh, to being an evacuation more than a music festival. And, and through that story and through all the games that happen, we talk about basic system science concepts and ideas that are, you know, all through complex systems and, and climate change and things like that. We talk about feedback loops and tipping points. Uh, we talk about tragedy of the commons and, and all, yeah, kind of the big ideas like that. And we, we do that with a story and by having people play games where they have to, you know, drive trucks around and collect garbage and they have to get the artists onto the stage on time and everything like that. It's a very big, silly, fun, playful kind of game, really, that then just digs into a lot of science stuff as well. And what sort of people have come along to play the game? Have you found it to be, It's because it's not necessarily presented in the in a disaster scenario space, it's a broader community yeah. process. And it's also not like one of the things uh, right from the start was like we want to make something that doesn't have to go into a theatre space. We don't have to do this in a theatre. We can take this into any sort of room. Um, one of the prompts was, can you make something that can go into like a boardroom, places where maybe they're not having these conversations that this would be a way in and a way to sort of prompt something a bit productive. We've done this, uh, we've done it for students, we've done it for general public theatre audiences, but we've also done it with a lot of policymakers. Uh, we did a show a few years ago of it uh, for the Australian Defence Force. Um, they were having a kind of a week-long uh kind of uh, intensive on like um, how the Australian Defence Force and other law enforcement agencies are uh, are tackling like drug importation and stuff like that. And we were kind of there as a way for them to meet and break the ice, but then also get like some ideas of, you know, language and systems things that they can then start talking about. So that was a really weird show, but a really exciting one. Um, Through through our work, through the Creative Recovery Network, we see many examples of how arts-based methodologies can provide ways for people to connect and to collaborate. What, what do you think it is specifically about games, the participatory process of engaging in a game that provides maybe it's a, a, an entry point or a different kind of language for exploring what can be very complex systems and ideas? We've always tried to make our games as inviting and playful as they can be. So even though, you know, in in Best Festival Ever, we're talking about tipping points, feedback loops, we're talking about all these kind of big complicated ideas, you're moving wooden blocks and toy cars around a table covered in green felt. And we've tried to make it, you know, as intentionally playful and light 
um, it's a music festival, right? Like early on, you know, like, oh, maybe this show needs to be, you know, it's a game about managing a, a water catchment area. I'm like people already, you know, the people that want to play that game are already on board. How do we get the people in that are maybe not on board? And maybe the way to do that is to have the choice to choose Dolly Parton as your headliner and, you know, try and save all the sheep from the flood when the music festival starts to collapse. So, yeah, we, we wanted it to be really playful. We wanted to just be inviting, colourful and, and non-threatening. Well, it's also that sense that you're, once your curiosity or creativity, creativity is activated, all, all the other processes of thinking that you have from your experience start to come out in a way that they don't normally when you're thinking very systematically. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. And, and, it's, and it's fun. And there's something nice about having a hands-on experience in a room with other people um, that you may or may not know. And that, I think, when you get to that point, then all of a sudden you can start being like, oh, I, I understand all these big ideas because I'm, I, I've just done it. I've just collected all the garbage with the stupid trucks. And now I feel like I, you know, I, yeah, I get that. Something that we've been able to do a lot with Best Festival Ever is have uh, a scientist or, or an expert come in and talk after the show as part of like, you know, we sort of package it together. We play the game have a little break and then come back and have like a chat and something that's been really exciting and rewarding is having people with no you know science background or experience in this or anything like that play this game and all of a sudden build together a little a toolkit and then a set of language that they can then have a really good rich conversation with this scientist um, and ask good questions and and feel you know kind of empowered and confident in having that conversation when I think, you know, they might not have been able to before. And that's great for the scientists as well. Whenever we do that, they get a real kick out of being able to really dig into some stuff because they've got a good grounding in the game that everyone's just played where, you know, there's this is we can talk from that. It's a good base for the conversation. Mm, creating, um, creating bridges and shared language. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And just I think, you know, having an experience, you know, like uh, as I said, I have a theatre background or whatever, but like, Theatre and anything like that is at its best when you feel fully involved and immersed. And so being able to have your hands on it and being able to control the story in some way, I think just helps you kind of put things together and and have an experience and connect with those ideas in a better way. Well, that's the basis, as they say, around resilience building, to be able to have a language, to have choices and some sort of self representation i suppose yeah yeah yeah. and like autonomy having you know having a bit of yeah absolutely one of the things that we talk a lot about within disaster planning at the moment is the need to reimagine futures you know things are changing so rapidly and some of the things that will occur we can predict and others uh, is an unknown particularly in the light of the climate crisis and how we need to adapt our approach to these new realities and the scale and the compounding impacts of these disasters. Once you get people into a mindset of play, they are automatically thinking more creatively and communicating in different ways, which is so useful in future thinking. Primary uh, reason why we look at um, having science fiction writers, etc., involved in scenario thinking. But you explore this kind of future thinking in a project in Canberra called Futures with a capital F. That was a very fun and weird show. We made that just coming out of um, lockdown in 2020 and it was a real like, oh, we're back doing a thing again and that's strange. <laughs> so it was. Um, um, but that- it, it had a specific focus on building resilience into the future 
in anticipating disasters. What's the what? What was the context? Can you talk a bit about how that worked? Yeah, so that that show kind of came about through a, I guess, a commission from Canberra Theatre Centre to make a game about Canberra. And at that point, we'd been having a lot of conversations with people in emergency management and a lot of conversations just about future scenarios and how we think about different futures and how we can kind of compartmentalise them and how that can be a productive tool, not for just the prediction itself, but then thinking about, cool, what, what has to happen in between? If this is the thing we want, what are the steps that let us get there? So we decided to make a game about the future of Canberra. And we kind of, we started with, you know, the end point of like, all right, what if, you know, 40 years from now we have like the worst possible outcome, every disaster converging at once. Um, But we know that. And now we're going to go back to the present day and play through the next four decades and try and see how, how much resilience we can build into the city of Canberra to get to that point and hopefully be able to deal with it. And there's a very silly, uh, I think, while all that crisis is happening, the Gold Coast has become the new capital of Australia and the only way for Canberra <laughs> to get the capital back Good on you, love is your to Queensland. kind of win the game and be resilient <laughs> enough. Otherwise, it's it's very silly. They have like a new, new parliament house and a cool Questacon. It's um, silly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's that level of humour that helps kind of de-escalate? But also, you know, if you're thinking seriously about these issues into the future, they're complex and often very challenging and a lot of conflict arises from deep people's different perspectives of what and how to manage. Do you think that the the element of comedy you bring in is the key for you to work through that? I think it's a really big part of it. I think, yeah, it, it lets people engage with it in a way that hopefully doesn't freak them out. We can kind of be like, yeah, this, you know, all this stuff in the future might happen and it's very scary, but like, let's just try and be playful and have fun with it. And I think by leaning into, I guess, like a lot of those comedy tropes and anything to do with a disaster, we're going to like lean right into disaster movies and, you know, have all those really kind of cinematic, like little snapshots of a thing. I think they help us just kind of separate it in enough to be able to deal with it and think properly about it, but then also to have fun. And the nice thing about playing a game is that you can, you can fail and that's okay. And and we can, you know, Canberra 2060, we can let it absolutely blow up and that's, that's fine. You know, we've played the game. We saw what that outcome was. That's useful. And so we always try and write failures to be at least as fun as successes. You're going to have fun if you win, but if you're going to lose, we want it to be spectacular loss. Well, it's interesting because in disaster exercises, the idea is currently probably not about finding your point of failure, that stress point, Like, but an exercise is about finding the stress point so you know you can manage and see what alternatives there might be for you. So to do that without a judgment is a real challenge, isn't it, in the real world, in, yeah. if we talk about sort of real-world ex- application? Yeah, it's tricky. So I think, like, especially in that show, we, we tried to find a balance between being really specific, like all the disasters happening in Canberra were happening to, like, known landmarks and, and you know, popular buildings or whatever, and, and the game was kind of broken up into suburbs and each suburb was very specific. You were like, all right, this suburb might be vulnerable to fires and, you know, blackouts and and, and whatever. But then kind of trying to pair that specificity and being like, cool, this is like a a real thing that could happen, but it, we're going to be a bit silly about it too. So we can at least kind of dive right in, but then, you know, not not feel too bad about it, I guess. Well, what- or again, at least like enjoy the 
enjoy their catastrophe while we're in a game <laughs> and then we can sort of sit back and think about what we do actually want and what we might actually need to do. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's all very well to play a game, but what are the actions or the learnings and how can they be articulated back into perhaps the more um, reali- realistic way of, of using this information or these new ways of thinking? So does your game... Or where do you see the kind of, I suppose, the step from the game experience into applying new knowledges or new learnings or new languages? Yeah. For us, I think in all our games, the, you know, half an hour, hour after the game is just as important as the game itself. So the conversation that we, you know, we usually try and lead or set up in some way to let people digest and and kind of and think about it and talk about it in a productive way. We think that's just as important as the game. We're going to have fun. We're going to, you know, let this thing blow up or whatever or try and avert that. But then we're going to sit down and we're going to say, hey, so these things that we made quite silly in this game, these are based on real things. This is a real world thing and we're going to have to deal with some of this. What are the, you know, what are the little kind of points of leverage or or um, influence in the game that we can talk about that are actually like real points of leverage that we have decisions to make over the next few decades. So for us, it's it's always about we're going to sit down and have fun and have this really playful experience where we learn some stuff and then we're going to chat about the kind of, I guess, the real world analog for that. Um, that's really, really important part of any game for us. Well, that's the articulated learning, isn't it? I'm interested in the concept of how games can give participants a real sense of agency or this self-determination that we mentioned before. We talk a lot about developing agency among young people, in particular in relation to disaster planning, as that's a big gap, I think, in terms of knowledge and knowledge holders. And there's been a um, growing understanding in recent years about how important it is for them to have a sense of responsibility and a role to play, particularly in the preparedness phase. So, You worked with a group of young people at Eden Marine High School, which is on the south coast of New South Wales in the Bigger Valley Shire. I'd love to hear about the process of those interactive sessions and if you had any observations on how this kind of games-based methodologies works with that age group specifically and how it kind of built their knowledge or their self-determination. Yeah, a really lovely time for us. I think they were years 9, 10 and 11, I want to say. We went down and we ran a couple of games. It was a couple of games that we made in Singapore a few years ago about disasters and very much about the period of time in disasters between the first warning signs and the event actually happening. Um, so all those games, there's nothing to do with the, you know, the moment itself. There's nothing to do with like the cleanup or recovery. We're like, that's, that's a separate game. We're very interested in the decisions that you have to make when you have limited information and there's a disaster you know may or may not happen in the next few days. Um, And just that sort of ongoing trade-off between certainty and ability to act, you know, right at the start, you know, you get the first warning sign of a, of a cyclone or something like that. You're like, cool. I I got the most ability to act, but I'm the least confident about what's going to happen right through to obviously the moment when it's happening. You're like, well, I know what's going to happen now, but it's too late for me to do anything. So all those games um, that we took down to Eden was sort of about that dynamic. and we we played them with the kids. Um, what we did at the start as well, we we sort of ran through some of our process of how we make games, how we take, you know, these sort of social ecological systems and then transcribe that into a sort of game. And we did that just by kind of running through that process with the kids and saying like, cool, if we were going to make a game about Eden, about your area, 
what does that look like? And we kind of went through a lot of those steps, asking questions that we ask when we're starting to make a game. Um, and then we played our games and then we kind of spent a while just chatting. I, I guess just that thing again of like, cool, what, what, what was real in the game or what wasn't real in the game? Uh, what, you know, if, if we had to change this game to make it more realistic, what would, what would that be like? And, you know, in what ways do the decisions that we gave you maybe not exist or what makes them harder? outside of a game and then having a similar process where we brought in that stuff from the beginning when we said, Hey, so we talked about, you know, we spent a while describing Eden as a complex social ecological system. We looked at all the things that are happening in Eden. If you were going to make a game about Eden and about your area, what would it be? What are your tipping points? What are your like little feedback loops and what are your decision points that you have to make to kind of manage this, particularly in the event of a disaster? Um, we had a really, really lovely conversation where, you know, I think the nice thing about getting to do that, which is like most of our work really, is that a lot of the time we're not the experts in the room. You know, we're working with scientists, we're working with people who are very, you know, immersed in a, in a particular system. And so it's a lovely opportunity for us to kind of turn it over to these kids and be like, this is how we make games. This is what our games kind of feel like. But what are the what are the tensions and, and the kind of exciting things for you about this area if we're thinking about disaster preparedness? You know, what what are the links in the community that you know about and you know are important that we don't know? Mm, well, that's amazing information to feedback into all the different service providers too. So do you have yeah. key relationships with um, those bodies in the development of this work? Who Who are the key partners that you work with? For Eden, that was the first day of a like a high school program that they were starting that was going to be for six months. We were kind of like the first day, let's play some games and have some cool conversations. And then from there, they're having like a lot of different SES and other emergency groups coming through. They're working a lot with Headspace as well. Um, so they've got like this very large program and, and they, I think- So you stim- the stimulate the creative thinking to get- yeah, and, and they're having some outputs for the kids to do as mm. well. You know, I don't know whether it's going to happen, but they were very like, maybe we'll make a game. Oh, I'm, like, I'm sure it will be very good. So, um, yeah, so that was exciting. It's a kind of interesting niche field in some ways, but so important for everything, you know, the idea of climate and disasters moving forward in our future. Like where where do you see yourself heading with this, Nathan? Is that what's it triggered your interest in the application of gaming more broadly or Yeah, a little bit. I mean look, I love games. When we're not doing boho stuff, I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and board games and what you know, for me, I, I love learning how a system works through a game and then, you know, getting to play that and share it with friends. There's a really lovely quote from someone that I, I think is kind of important to our practice as well. It's like a game is is a is a space where you have a, a bunch of people sit down and decide to behave by a, a set of rules because the hope is that by doing that, something magic might happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. I think that's a really lovely oh, that's way to think about the experience of playing a game. Mm. And I think that's like a theatre thing as well, right? Do you think you that that's and- what is democracy? I hope so. I mean, yeah, right? Like there's something, yeah, it, it's very democratic about that, I think. Playing a game should feel, um, yeah, it's the, like it's that's the kind of level of participation you want, right? And the same kind of, you know, a bunch of people, and you're like, cool, we, we agree to do this because we think that, the outcome is going to be worth us collaborating in this way. I think that's a nice way to think about, like, yeah, most relationships and stuff. Yeah, like that. and I suppose talking about the idea of group and collaboration and 
you know, people like Richard Sennett say the biggest skill we need to learn for the future is collaboration, that we seem to have lost that yet. Games uh, are participatory by nature, aren't they? They're not of of an individual, well, they are games that are of individual framings, but the games that you produce are very much about working collectively. Do you think, yeah. what, what's your thoughts around that and its kind of base drive for um, future thinking or participation in general? So one of the, I guess, one of the things that um, we kind of built our practice around, there's like, I guess, a few things. There's a couple of books by um, Brian Walker and David Salt, Resilience Thinking Mm. and Resilience Practice, which are really just wonderful books about how to think about and manage social ecological systems. Um, And connected to that, uh, there's a a process called participatory co-modeling. Uh, which I know CSIRO did in the Murray-Darling Basin a lot, where they would talk to all the different groups that are connected to that area, all the environmentalists, traditional landowners, uh, farmers, you know, locals, everyone, and sort of sit down and get them to describe the area, um, but iterate that process with all these different groups and then together build a picture of the area that sort of satisfies all these disparate perspectives and all these different, you know, priorities that people have because if you ask an environmentalist and a farmer to describe the Mari darling like they're not going to give you the same picture mm. but through doing that process they were able to sort of build together this big sort of composite image and place that in the middle of everybody and get them to come together and and sort of say hey this is this is the picture we made and you know if we've done it right everyone here can kind of agree that at least from their perspective this is what it looks like and this is now the point that we can start to have a productive conversation and we can start to actually make some connections and think about it because we're talking about the one thing instead of everyone talking about a very individualized or, or you know, politicized version of the, the real area. And that for us is a really like kind of light bulb moment of, of how games can work of, you know, a game is, is a model of a real thing. And if you put it in front of everybody and get them to play it, then all of a sudden you can have that conversation. But a big part of that collaboration, I think, for us is about highlighting that what we've done is a model and it's not accurate. You know, we've obviously, we make decisions, we artistic license and and, and everything like that. But also in order to get our point across, we have to kind of present things in a certain way. It's really important to us to give you know people playing these games space to like kind of i guess play back at the game and say well no this isn't right you know this is how how this actually works or whatever we've done a lot of um sometimes with games sometimes just on their own a lot of just game making workshops where we'll sit down with people we'll get them to describe you know an organization or their their local area or something like that and then we'll build a game together there's a, there's a lovely quote by um, an Italian game designer uh, named uh, Paolo Pedericci, uh, sorry, Pedicini. He says, if you want to learn about systems, don't play games, make games. <laughs> yes. And we think that's lovely because to make a game, you have to, you have to understand all these moving parts. And so even, even when we're putting games in front of people and they're not making the games, we try and invite you know, than to tear the game apart a little bit conceptually and, and say, hey, this this is not right, but, like, hopefully that as a prompt is is a good place to start that conversation about 
how the real world actually works. Mm, well, the greatest gift of creativity is participation, isn't it? Stretching that yeah. muscle. What great work. And we really look forward to hearing more about your work and maybe engaging with you into the future, Nathan. It's a very exciting yeah. area to be working with. And I know that there's currently reviews around uh, exercise pro- programs, etc., across Australia. So great timing to be hearing more about your work. So what, um, just show as we finish in, what would be uh, one of your favourite games that you like to play or special games that you like to play that you could tell us a bit about? Ooh, as in that we've made? Or one, your favourite, that you think is a great game. Oh, I'm really loving uh, a game at the moment called Blood on the Clock Tower, which is um, made by a bunch of Sydney designers and is uh, a social deduction game, kind of like Werewolf or Mafia, if you played games like that. Um, but there's a sort of a complexity to it that is just joyous and and the kind of the amount of little every you know everyone has all these little things going on and and getting to play it or sort of even just sit outside and watch it is is just very it's it's a wonderfully rich experience so I really like that I think just there's something about the complexity of that game that really you know scratches an itch for me mm. um and is is very very good well, thanks so much for sharing with us, Nathan. Like, if people wanted to know more about uh, you or Boho Interactive, where where would we go to find out more about your work? Yeah, uh, our website is uh, bestfestivalever.com.au. It's got all of our projects. We've also got a, um, a blog up on the website. Uh, most of our projects will try and blog through the process and ask a lot of the questions we're stuck on and, and really dig into stuff. And it's a nice kind of record of, <laughs> it's a good record of how far we've come, but also a nice way to, um, reflect on our work. Yeah, I think that's probably the best place to find us. Fantastic. I think what we try and promote is that culture and the arts has a really important role in terms of leadership of systems change or thinking or the ways that we interact with each other in society. And maybe what you're reflecting in the games is is the the kind of way to unpack that narrative in a way that you can see it and hear it and feel it. So then it's much more applicable in your daily life. Would you see it in that yeah, way? I hope so. After one of uh, the very first tests we did of best festival ever, um, this guy came up to us um, who, a- again, like no science background at all, like the furthest thing from an academic possible. And he was just like, oh, I understand it now. So the way that things, everything is connected. So like, we've, you know, we've had like a generation of, um, of kids that are playing FIFA at home instead of going out and that's kind of cascaded and he had all these dot points and then ended up with like, and that's why England lost to Germany last night. <laughs> <laughs> like, great, you got it. Like, <laughs> whatever whatever has just happened here, you've, you've found a way to like <laughs> implement that already, which was very <laughs> exciting for us. Uh, uh, fabulous. Well, thank you again, Nathan. It's been great to speak with you and we look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation and a special thanks to Nathan for joining me. We will include links in our show notes to Boho Interactive's work. We'll also include a range of links and research about how games are being used in disaster management preparedness processes if you'd like to explore further. If you'd like to access episode transcripts and research links related to the podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au where you'll find all of our past episodes. If you're enjoying Creative Responders, we'd love you to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. 
It really helps us a lot if you leave a five-star review and let us know what you're enjoying about the show. Creative Responders podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. We'll be back next month with another conversation and we'll also have a new documentary episode in the pipeline which we are really looking forward to sharing with you in December. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.